North Untapped is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. It has been a dramatic couple of weeks in the BC NDP leadership race, with new and old members raising concerns about the party using, quote, McCarthy-esque vetting tactics, and pundits openly speculating that the NDP is planning to disqualify insurgent candidate Anjali Apadurai. These concerns come amid unproven allegations of campaign finance violations, dismissed by critics as a baseless attempt to remove Apadurai's thousands of supporters from the party. A disqualification of Apadurai would pave the way for David Eby, the former Attorney General and Minister responsible for housing, to take over the Premier's office unopposed. However, amid all of political intrigue and punditry, Apadurai came out this week with a bold policy platform dedicated to improving BC's public health system. The platform, titled Healthy People, Healthy Communities, addresses a range of problems with ambitious solutions, explicitly identifying the current issues with the public health system as being interconnected with a range of other issues, including the climate emergency, the housing crisis and systemic racism against Indigenous peoples. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Anjali to talk about her platform and the solutions that it proposes. Anjali, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so as I mentioned at the top, like it's really been quite a uh, dramatic couple of weeks in the leadership race. Um, and a lot of people I've spoken to have described a pretty unpleasant, shall we say, atmosphere in and around this race. Um, I wanted to start by checking in on like how you're doing and like how you're feeling about the campaign overall. Oh, thanks for doing that. I, um, you know, I'm feeling good. I feel that this has ballooned into something that is, um, we don't, I don't quite know yet what the conversation around this is going to um, be. It feels like we're still early in that conversation. There's, there's layers to it. You know, we thought this was going to be a conversation about the climate emergency and about what an appropriate response to our intersecting crises um, should be from policymakers in in the province, um, and that's you know that's why I entered the race. And now it's a much more complex and layered conversation about democracy and the party system and the party system's relationship with social movements and uh, the centralization of power. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, we haven't quite sorted out all the pieces of that conversation yet. The chips haven't fallen. And I, I guess this this campaign, when it started, uh, you were kind of being painted as this single issue candidate focused on the climate emergency, which indeed you have been. But I think this uh, this platform really kind of you know deeply addresses another major crisis that this province is facing. Uh, so you've gone ahead and detailed in this plan quite a bold and uh, you know ambitious uh, roadmap for improving public health care in British Columbia. Before we get into the the document's contents, can you tell us a bit about how you went uh, how you went about formulating this plan and like how you decided which measures really needed to be prioritized in this policy document? You know, that's been a whole journey. The process, I believe, you know, the process is 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 um, more important than the outcome because uh, how how we develop something like this is indicative of reflective of the world that we want to create. Having said that, I had really grandiose plans for this wonderfully democratic, participatory, rich process that would go on for months and we would come out with this truly uh, democratic from the ground up document. 
And unfortunately, because of the nature of this race and um, and because of all, all the other things that our campaign was dragged into, we ended up losing a lot of time. Uh, you know, I had this idea to do listening circles across the province and we had um, we, we, you know, we released a policy vision, like an overall sort of high level articulation of the intersections between the different crises that we're facing. And we had a um, basically just a Google form um, in there where anybody across the province could put in their policy ideas and speak from their experience and from their their lived experience, essentially, and from their profession and from 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 what was happening in their lives. And I and we did draw from that. We got we got a lot of participation in that. So that was the first early part of the process. You know, lots of people inputting through this little tool and and giving us their ideas and their and the pressure points and the pain points in their lives. And then we did do a couple of uh, listening circles and not as many as I would have liked. And then after that, it was just tons of conversations with as many as we could squeeze in with um, with experts, with people on the front lines, people experiencing the issues in their lives, you know, crowdsourcing stories and experiences through our networks. I think one of the superpowers that I have in this campaign is or not this campaign in, in, in my life as a as a climate activist is my network. You know, I really do believe that that's the source of the power that we're bringing to this campaign. It's we we know so many people who are on the right side of these issues, who are who are taking a whole systems approach um, and who understand the transformative and imaginative solutions that are needed. So how do you get to a document that has specific priorities when you have a crisis this big? I was trying to thread a needle of solutions that would fill what I call the imagination gap that austerity and neoliberalism have created for us, where, you know, we have these ideals and we have this vision of where we want to be. And and I think people want to believe in that vision, but we don't have a collective imagination for how to for how to get there. And we believe that we have to play in the realm of the politically possible and that we have to you know, sort of work with incrementalism and 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 just you know go through the right channels and do what our policymakers have told us is possible. And people know, I think deep down, I think a lot more people than we than than we than we see reflected in the polls recognize that there's that that better is possible, but they haven't been shown a clear and concrete roadmap. And so that's the needle I was trying to thread in this plan was to fill that imagination gap with concrete, imaginative, transformative solutions that are also immediately actionable, essentially solutions that are outside the box thinking and um, and that leapfrog us to better futures without accepting the assumptions of neoliberalism um, and the assumptions of austerity. And, you know, at first blush, a lot of these policies will come off as pie in the sky or idealistic. And you dig into it and you realize that what's required is the political will and the imagination to make them happen. It's super interesting what you say about like um, way more people than is reflected in things like polling and punditry uh, actually care and appreciate these issues. Uh, the other week when I was um, working on a story about, um, you know, some of the, the, the vetting phone calls that members have been getting, I put out a call out 
And some of the responses I got, like my my brother-in-law texted me <laughs> saying he joined the party. Uh, and like, I had honestly had no idea he was even remotely interested in politics. Um, so like, I, I think you're absolutely correct that like there is a very broad swathe of people who are heeding uh, this message uh, far more so than is being conveyed in uh, mainstream discourse, I think. So for the benefit of listeners who live outside of BC, like a lot of our audience lives in uh, Ontario and elsewhere, could you just give us a brief outline of like what are the biggest problems facing BC's public health care system today that your campaign is trying to address? BC's public health system is experiencing several crises points and it's incredibly complex because it is a system with all these parts that work together. One of the key pain points is the lack of access to a family doctor. So one in five people in BC do not have access to a family doctor, and that has created all kinds of knock-on effects throughout the system. We know that when people don't have access to continuous care, that actually costs the system way more, and, and it creates far worse health outcomes when, uh, when, people, when people don't have that continuous access to the same person. It also exposes um, and exacerbates the inequities, the racism within the system. And so that is one acute crisis, the lack of family doctors. The other is the critical overcapacity of our large healthcare infrastructure, hospitals, ambulances. Those things are far overburdened and, um, you know, hospitals are overflowing. Um, the pandemic sort of pushed them past a breaking point. Um, and there's a critical lack of a uh, critical shortage of ambulances. There's a really tragic story last week where an eight-month-old baby passed away because there was no ambulance available in time. And, you know, this is part of the intersectionality of it, is that when climate disaster comes along, and, and we know we're due for more of them, so the heat dome last year killed over 600 people, there were no ambulances. There was no first response People were calling 911. I, I spoke to some firefighters, uh, you know, after this heat dome, and it was one of the most um, emotional conversations I've ever had with a public sector worker. They were saying that, you know, in their careers of 20, 30 years, that heat dome was the worst 72 hours of their entire career because they had to take calls. So, so first of all, the 911 numbers were jammed up and people couldn't even reach nine, um, a, a voice on the other end of 911. They had to show up to people's homes where they would have a, have a dying loved one and tell them no help is coming. Just keep them as comfortable as possible until they die. And that was um, incredibly traumatizing for our for our healthcare workers. So that's another part of the crisis, um, an epidemic of of healthcare workers leaving the system because they are burnt out, traumatized and experiencing uh, men uh, mental health issues. And so. So it's sort of it's sort of a systems breakdown at, at all levels. We also have, I mean, from a from a patient perspective, you know, we also have a healthcare system where our brains and our teeth are treated as separate from the rest of our bodies when it comes to health coverage. And so uh, especially now, again, with the intersecting crises, mental health issues are on the rise. And one in five Canadians ex is experiencing mental health issues personally, uh, not to mention your friends and family. And so that's a critical gap as well. And then, I mean, this is also a public health emergency on our hands. We have a toxic drug supply circulating in the province right now, and it's killing people. This was declared a public health emergency in 2016, and 10,000 people have died since that emergency was declared. And so 
that's a very, very urgent emergency as well. And then back to the intersectionality of it. Um, this is the thing, you can't separate health from all the other things. This year, we experienced a very tragic figure of houseless people or underhoused people dying. And that number jumped by 75% from last year to this year. So more people who have a lack of access to housing are dying. And that, in my opinion, is an emergency as well. The aspect of your platform that seems to so far have attracted the most mainstream attention has been your proposal to um, immediately increase the salaries of registered nurses by 25%. And then, of course, I saw some of your uh, opponents, including a former cabinet minister who shall not be named at this point, uh, were asking, like, well, why aren't you increasing the salaries of, of other healthcare workers? But your platform actually does state um, to, to, to build cost of living adjustments into the pay of nurses, care aides, health science professionals and community home workers and other, and I'm reading directly here, crucial yet often undervalued healthcare practitioners. I also found it, you know, as a side note, slightly rich that uh, some people in the party were talking about like, well, what about teachers? Well, I mean, this this province under the current government has the second lowest uh, teacher salaries in Canada. Uh, so that, that was a little rich, uh, I, I think, coming from them. Um, but back to the issue of health worker pay specifically, I mean, you've mentioned the kind of retention and recruitment crisis that the province is already going through. Um Talk to us about like why these pay increases are so necessary to kind of like sustain the public health system amid all these intersecting crises that you've talked about. Yeah. So this set, this plan is, as I said, an amalgamation of voices that I believe are the voices on the right side of this issue and are a collection of voices from community, from the front lines and 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 experts. And we heard across the board that. Uh, and this was a learning for me too, as someone who's not that familiar with the healthcare system, that nurses are the heart of it all. Of course, you have a whole team of, of health professionals, care aides and allied professionals that are that are part of making the system work. But we have um, a specific set of uh, crisis indicators when it comes to nursing. For example, there are these, there are nurse agencies, private nurse agencies, where the wage that nurses are able to get if they go work with these private agencies is 50 to 75% higher than the public sector wage. And if you're a nurse that's burned out from the pandemic, absolutely overburdened and understaffed, that's a really hard offer to refuse. And so here we have a critical threat of privatization that is undermining the integrity of the public health system. We're having nurses leave in droves to go work for places that can pay them more. And then that costs the public health system because you have to contract back those nurses from the private um, agencies. And that's costing an estimation of, I think it's $64 million a year, um, just to just to bring in nurses on on contract. And so it's, uh, it's not a, a radical solution to say, we need to pay our public healthcare professionals more. This is the standard that they should be at. And we want that for we want that for all our healthcare workers, for every care aide and for every allied professional. We're going to start where the the need is most acute, and we're going to use that as a as a bar that we that we have to meet for everyone else as well. And we and at a minimum, we're beginning with cost of living adjustments 
for 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 everyone else. And so uh, there's a real threat of privatization there. There's a real threat of burnout there. And we heard across the board that the crisis really begins with nurses. Your, your platform also promises to um, scale up and establish community health centers and First Nations health centers across the province uh, to ensure that every community has access to one. Um, what is a community health center? And like, why do these facilities have such an important role in your vision for kind of reforming healthcare in BC? Is This is the part of the plan that I'm the most excited about. I, I think it's the most transformative, um, uh, beautiful idea. And um, I, I hope, that, <laughs> I hope that, that this is the direction we move in regardless of the, the outcome of this race. A, a community health center is a, a, a one-stop shop. I hate to, I hate to be flippant about it, but it is, it's, it's a place in your community where you go to get healthcare, where there are multiple services under one roof, where you can go and see your doctor. There's, uh, there, there's nurses and nurse practitioners. There's mental health professionals. There's social workers. There's pharmacists. There's uh, cultural specialists. And the beauty of a community health center is that the it is governed uh, by a community board that's made up of folks from that community. And so every community health center will be responsive to the unique needs of that community. Um, not every community is going to need a certain number of um, social services. Some might need a different kind of specialist. And so uh, the idea is for, for that community health center to meet the needs of the people that it's serving. And uh, I think it's a wonderful model. It it is so much better for first of all health outcomes, for health and well being for all. Because when you can access team based care, it uh, you know health health issues. You know we we talk about intersectionality a lot. Health issues are not just isolated to one condition. A lot of times they are complex and they and they cross through multiple parts of your lives. If you are having a health condition that requires medication, but you don't have a home, a safe place to take that medication, that medication is not going to be effective. And so a, a community health center is a place where you can actually go and access social services. You can have a social worker link you with housing or employment or other services that you need. So it's more responsive care. Community health centers can also include things like gender affirming care, trans health services, sort of really um, urgent services for people fleeing violence. Uh, it's, it's, it's integrated and it's, um, and it's holistic and it's team-based and it's just the care that people deserve. Our whole plan sort of has this approach where we're moving towards more community-based care, where we're seeing our healthcare system less as, you know, an assembly line where we churn people through and more as um, this responsive conversation that is rooted in a genuine understanding of all the determinants of health um, there are so many determinants of, of health other than the healthcare system. The healthcare system is actually just 25% of what determines overall health. And it's, it's, it's recognizing that the individual's health is so connected to the health of your community. So having a, a center that is a hub in a community builds up the health of the whole community, which in turn has benefits for, for every individual as well. And so it's a more cost effective, it is more preventative, so that people are getting less sick, it is intersectional, 
and it will save the system money in the long run and it and it moves us towards a more caring healthcare system that is rooted in true well-being which is which is intersectional which is holistic and ultimately we want to move to what you know uh some of us call a care economy that is where low carbon work which is care work is valued more highly in our economy and is scaled up and is made to be a bigger part of our economy and I think I just want to uh, end this this love letter to community health centers by saying that our current healthcare system was created and designed for the needs of the time, and the needs of the time were, you know, infectious disease and accidents, and so we have hospitals and and emergency rooms, which are uh, which are well equipped to deal with the needs of, of, of when that system was designed. But we have a very, very different set of needs now. And we have babies breathing in wildfire smoke, and we have heat waves, and we have atmospheric rivers, and we have an inequality crisis that is driving people into deeper poverty and sending people falling through the cracks. And our healthcare system needs to be responsive to all of these different conditions that we find ourselves living through. And that can't happen by tinkering at the edges. It has to happen through a, a, a huge directional shift towards a totally different form of care and a totally different way of thinking about health. One of the, one of the huge health crises that you've already alluded to um, is obviously the drug poisoning uh, catastrophe, really. Let's call it what it is. Um, your platform acknowledges, uh, quote, we must take an emergency approach that emphasizes community-based solutions. I guess that speaks to the community health center component that we just talked about, harm reduction and safe supply. Um, and it also, one comparison that it makes that I thought was quite interesting, it highlights the ability of the province to undertake a massive public health program like it did with the kind of COVID-19 vaccination program rollout. So I'm curious, can, can you can you like specify like what differentiates your approach to the drug poisoning crisis to that of the one currently being taken by the BC government? Well, right now, the BC government says that it's implementing safe supply. We do have a safe supply program, but it is not available to all. It is not uh, the way that, that the illicit drug supply is managed. There is still an illicit drug supply, which means that we don't have an adequate safe supply program. And our, our approach to this crisis is still rooted in prohibition model. It is not rooted in how do we prevent death. And so I think there are a lot of deeper barriers to overcome and that's going to take time. But the first thing that we need to do is absolutely uh, implement uh, an immediately available, regulated, reliable supply of substances with low barriers to access. So and that means you don't have to rely on going through a doctor and getting it prescribed. It should be a lot more easy to access than that. And that's going to involve a big investment and that's going to involve a whole bunch of infrastructure to be built. But it is absolutely necessary to save lives. I, I was quite surprised by something in your platform because I was led to believe by our uh, our governments and uh, officials that the COVID-19 pandemic was in fact over. But it seems like from your platform, it's 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 not in fact over and that you're, uh, you're directly acknowledging uh, the ongoing existence and very real and present danger caused uh, posed by the the COVID-19 pandemic so your, your platform talks about um 
evidence-based solutions to to addressing this ongoing threat. So like, what are some of these specific evidence-based measures that you'll be looking at in the Premier's office? Well, I think, you know, the first thing to acknowledge is that now we know that COVID-19 is an airborne virus. And as such, we need to talk about air (laughs) and we need to set minimum standards for the air that we breathe um, in indoor spaces. Uh, We spend 90% of our lives indoors. Nine out of 10 breaths is taken indoors. And so it's critical that we address indoor health, um, indoor air health. (laughs) And so um, part of this plan is is to set some uh, standards uh, with a focus on education and businesses on indoor air quality. So new standards for ventilation, focused investments in places where it's needed the most, as I mentioned, schools is a huge part of that. And then obviously that, you know, that has a cost to it. So so providing supports for for small businesses and and for schools to be able to implement those things. Clean air is something that has benefits far outside the pandemic as well. We are in a climate emergency. There's smoke in the air for a good number of days out of the year, you know, I have asthma. And so I know that that's something that affects my quality of life as well. And if there were, if, uh, if we had a more robust system of ensuring air indoor air quality, that would make life easier for people like me as well. Not to mention all the little kiddos, you know, the, the kids in my life who can't go outside, their parents can't take them out on certain days. And that's if you're lucky enough to have an air filter in your home. And so uh, it's it's critical that we just take those easy fixes. I think another part of the pandemic response that that is really important to me is it's what you said at the beginning that you know we've been led to believe that the pandemic is over, and I think that that's because our public health response started really well, in my opinion. We started with a sense that we're all in this together. Uh, we had this wonderful collective few months of banging pots and pans and talking to our neighbors and all this mutual aid stuff happening, uh, all these stories of kindness, stranger kindness and and help. I, I thought that was beautiful. But a, a truly collective public health response is difficult to manage. And I think at a certain point, it became easier to take a more individualistic, libertarian <laughs> approach uh, and and you know of course there was pushback um, from from the anti-vax groups and whatever, but but I think it was I think that we need to bring back that sense of collectivity because you can't get out of a public health crisis through individual choice. That's that's not how we respond to a collective problem. And that applies, obviously, to the next uh, major collective crisis over the the climate crisis. But I think that part of the approach in this plan that we've laid out is to bring back that sense of collectivity and to communicate in a in a more uh, in a stronger way to the public that we are all in this together and we need to we need to act together and we need to take care of our most vulnerable together. Um, and that's how we'll get through this. Super interesting. There, there are so many other uh, really key planks uh, in this platform. So I encourage listeners, if they want to find out more, to to actually read the document for themselves. 
Here at The Maple, we'll be covering this in more depth next week. We have someone assigned to write a story about it, so I'm very excited to seeing uh, different aspects of this platform being discussed and fleshed out in more detail. Anjali, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, I, <laughs> it's been a tough, tough few weeks, but uh, I, uh, I, I hope it all goes okay for you and that uh, yeah, the, the next couple of weeks and the next few days aren't too uh, onerous and stressful as they have been. Thank you so much. Um, I'm, I'm as stressful as it is. I'm, I'm just as curious as everyone else how this is all going to shake down and what the implications will be um, for, for social movements, for, for our whole province. Yeah, so thanks for digging into it with me.